Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Today, we're going to demystify the world of royalty and streaming. Uh, we're ably helped today by Kyle Floyd. He's the CEO of Vox Royalty. He's going to talk us through some of the vocabulary, business models, and players in the marketplace. If you like what you hear today, you can go and find more information at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club, where we also have detailed company reports and analysis on a variety of topics. We're joined by experts from around the world uh, who talked to us about commodities and companies. We are, our training videos on there to help you with your diligence process. And of course, summaries of other interviews that we've done just to save you some time. And plus, do go and have a look at uh, the cruxinvestor.com forward slash club to join a thriving community of investors sharing their ideas with each other in a nice, friendly, civil environment. Sounds nice? Well, cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. See you there. Kyle, how are you, sir? I'm terrific, Matt. Things are going well. Good, good, good. Good to see it. We spoke uh, in December. It's, it's way too late to say, like, uh, did you have a good Christmas and how is your new year? So, but but did you? Yeah, I think we're expired on that conversation. But <laughs> no, that uh, the end of the year was terrific. We're off to a really good start in 2021. So I can't complain. Cool. Okay. Well, like, um, I called you because I want your help. Okay. I've been, since we spoke, um, I liked our conversations. We've spoken to a few other royalty companies. We're even going to have a royalty week, middle of March. Okay. But I need your help with definitions. We've had lots of questions come in here. And I think what I'm working at is that not all royalty companies are the same. Okay. And I think there's a perception out there that royalty is a royalty is a royalty. Um, but I don't think that's true anymore. So, if you don't mind, let's have a conversation about what, what are the different types of royalty companies out there and how do you position yourself? So, so for instance, how would you describe yourself? Yeah, I would, I would describe Vox pretty simply as we're a buyer of third-party royalties. And what that means is we look for royalties that already exist on operating assets. We don't finance mining companies. Uh, we don't do what's called metal streams. Uh, we're, we're giving money to the mining company and, and hoping that the development goes well and that we get a return on capital from that. What we're doing is we're screening for royalties around the world. We're really unlocked in what we can look for, um, where companies are already operating these assets and royalties exist, which are held by third parties. We buy those royalties from third parties, and that is what we build a portfolio around. Right, okay, but you, you mentioned the word uh, operating parties. What you mean is, do you mean they're in production already? Or are you talking about near production or pre-production? I mean, how do you actually look at these companies? Yeah, Matt, that's a good question. What we look for is we look for finding the royalty where there's an operator that's highly engaged in moving that asset forward. Our particular focus is on near-term producing royalties. So we kind of peg that as one day out from production to a couple years out from production and where we can find, and that's really where we find the deepest value and the biggest set of opportunities. So that's, that's really our focus. The operator, that's the group that's running the mining operation. And we don't have much to do with them. We're obviously rooting for them uh, and hoping that they continue to exceed expectations and bring these assets forward into production. But we're actually buying the royalty from someone else, whether it was a prospector, telecommunications company, groups that own the rights to these royalties, but have nothing to do with the operations of those mining companies. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about that. So what, how are you qualified to work out how near term they are? Because you've got to be able to predict when they're going to go into production. From my conversations with companies, they're decidedly bad at doing that or misleading 
the market. So how do you ensure that you've got the right information to make the right decision? Yeah, making the right decision is, is critical. And, and what we have going for us and what we built our business around uh, as, as the foundation of what Vox is, is a very technically oriented team, mining engineers and geologists that know royalties and no assets, uh, especially in the jurisdictions that we're operating as well as anybody. And so the first pass, the first level of diligence that we're doing is understanding these assets at a technical level, and then also using our, our boots on the ground and our relationships to do better diligence um, in, in terms of what these assets are doing and, and what the operating partners are doing with these assets and, and, and understand what kind of value that's going to create for our shareholders. So really having the technical expertise and the relationships and, and better information on the ground is allowing us to make very informed, very diligent decisions on what we're buying and what price we're paying for those assets. But the companies that seem to do really well are the precious metal focused uh, royalty companies, right? But you decided, actually, no, I think there's other things that you make money with. I mean, what gives you that confidence? Yeah, it's interesting that there's been this narrative created in the royalty space that it's it's all about precious metals. And precious metals has been really what's been the focal point. If you look back at, say, Franco Nevada, really kind of originating the industry and then subsequently Royal Gold and Wheaton, um, they've created value around a precious metals dominant royalty portfolio. That being said, if you look at Franco, who's historically had the best valuation in the industry, they are 70% gold uh, by revenue. And so there's been this narrative created that, well, it's got to be all precious. Reality is Franco has hydrocarbon exposure, they have base metal exposure, and they have a lot of other exposure in that bucket of other. So we looked at it and said, we don't need to reinvent the wheel in terms of what our commodity mix looks like. We need to emulate who's done it best. And Franco, I think, arguably is one of those companies that's done it the best. They've achieved that, uh, you know, the very significant premium in the market from a valuation perspective. So we haven't reinvented anything. And if you look at our portfolio, it's 70% precious or more um, with the rest being others, only that's the other for us is other hard rock commodities um, that are also ESG friendly. So we we feel like we've distilled what created the most value and really focused on that. Okay. And if, but if I look at these companies, I mean, some of the multiples in some of these companies are huge. I mean, mm-hmm. if they're a private company, I don't think they would necessarily uh, have, have been able to get to where they where they are today. But the multiples in the public market are significant. And but at the, they're at that point where the, the portfolio is so big, it's very hard for people to kind of work out what what's good, what's not, and it's all kind of bunched into the same bucket. But for you guys, you're a hundred million dollar company, right? There's a whole bunch of small companies. You're one of them. How on earth do you move from where you are today, moving forward to become a billion dollar company or whatever your aspirations may be? Yeah, no, sure. Uh, we are still one of the the little companies in uh, in this little cottage sector uh, that you know, where we find ourselves in the royalty space. Um, Knowing what we're building and knowing where we're going, we absolutely have aspirations of being one of the next billion dollar royalty companies, but doing so at great value. One of the things that we get hit with, and I think one of the big concerns by investors in the space is royalty companies are valued at such a high, uh, kind of high threshold compared to mining companies. Uh, I think I can find better value by owning mining companies. And certainly in some cases, that's, that's absolutely true. In the case of Vox, we traded about one times NAV. We're buying royalties at a discount to NAV. And when we're asked, what do we do that creates value for investors? We're fundamentally buying assets at a discounted value 
versus what their real value is. And I think that's, at the end of the day, it's what sums up Vox and, and what I think others in the space are, are potentially struggling with is we're able to buy assets at great value that on a standalone basis are at a discount. And then when you also aggregate that within a portfolio, there's that portfolio effect in terms of diversifying against risk, but also a lot of the unforeseen upside that we've kind of accurately built in um, is realized for investors in that portfolio. So we are buying assets, we think, at a faster pace and at better value than anybody else in the industry. But are royalty, small royalty companies, because they've got, everyone's looking for growth, they're looking for leverage, so you know that's why we invest. But are they failure proof? I mean, do you need to be that bright to run a royalty company? You know, if you look back historically, most of the royalty companies that stayed exclusive to purchasing royalties have in fact performed exceedingly well. The reality is what you're seeing is because there's so many more royalty companies now, and most royalty companies, frankly, don't have the competitive advantages that Vox does, they're now in a position where they're having to reach, whether that's reaching to, to buy an asset more than it should be transacted at, or they're reaching in terms of going into originating um, much more risky opportunities. Um, and at the end of the day, what it is, it's the risk-adjusted returns are, are going to reflect that that poor formula in terms of asset buying um, or investing. And so I, I can't say that when you look at the history, when you look at the history and what you see is in the royalty market now, I don't think that every royalty company is going to be successful. In fact, I think there's going to be a lot that are that are very much unsuccessful. Um, and it's the royalty companies that are going to be able to stay disciplined, buy assets at, at very good value, um, and uh, and be able to continue to execute that type of model, which is getting increasingly difficult with the competition in the space. I think it's, I think it's an interesting voyage of discovery that we've been on and trying to understand you know, the different different models there. But I guess at the end of the day, the, the, the question is, okay, if some will fail, and I appreciate you saying saying that because it, it strikes me as the fundamentals of some of these companies don't quite stack. It was maybe, maybe because we don't understand it yet. But when I also look at the multiples being achieved by some of the bigger companies, the mid to large companies, you wonder sometimes if it matters if they run the company that well, because there'll be a roll up, there usually is, or they're going to achieve multiples, which kind of, again, distorts the reality of the situation. I mean, is that true of the royalty space? Yeah, big question to answer, frankly. But when I, I think kind of breaking that down, I don't think there's going to be a roll up that saves the underperformers. In fact, I think where you'll see if there are acquisitions to be done, I think the acquisitions are going to be done between companies that acknowledge that the other counterparty has also bought assets at, at good value and, and has delivered return. Um, where I don't think you know, the, the broad spectrum of royalty companies now are going to be saved by any industry-wide roll-up. You've also seen that the, lar- the larger players in the space have not, they've been very strategic about when they've transacted and bought other royalty companies um, and that's really been the case now for a number of years. So that's my perspective on that. I don't hold the crystal ball, so clearly things could unfold differently. And so I, I think valuations at the high end of the spectrum, when you look at the Francos and Royals and Wheatons of the world, they've done a very good job overall in terms of building a, a better risk-adjusted way to play the commodity sector. And they've now become you know, really almost uh, they compete with the indexes for, for funds and they've created their own space at that market cap size um, because 
they're just a different risk adjusted way to play the commodity sector. And I think it's worked out very, very well for them and it's, for their investors. It's interesting to me because it's kind of like I'm building this picture in my head of um, the, the, the big short here in the way that people compile products and put, you know, put them into a bond. And that's then value rather than seen individually. You know, you, you've got you know good products, not so good products, and some bad products, but they're all blended together, and it, and it kind of looks mm-hmm. fine from a distance because no one bothers to do the homework. But as we know from the big short, that doesn't always work out. But it's, I, that's that's kind of picture going in my head. I'm just and I'm trying to kind of yeah. wrap my head around it, so it it it, uh, it, it makes sense. Um, talk to me about your database because I you mentioned something earlier which kind of made me smile a bit. You know, you're talking about. Um, buying royalties from like automotive companies, um, you're finding them in strange places. What, what, why on earth have these people got mining royalties? Yeah, so, so going back to kind of the, the, the basis of that question is we acquired a royalty database from a company called Mineral Royalties Online. They had went out and through primary data built uh, from the ground up a royalty database of 7,000 now approaching 8,000 proprietary royalties. Um, that are out there, a proprietary database over these 8,000 royalties. That allows us to essentially high grade what's 8,000 royalties uh, and bring in what we think is the best and what's going to create the most value for our shareholders. That's unlocked value in terms of us being able to find under the radar unknown about royalties, whether it's a 1992 royalty agreement buried in a, in a small junior mining company or a near-term producer uh, that's with a telecommunications business We've been able to find royalties that are held by automotive parts companies, hearing aid businesses, telecom businesses, <laughs> really? others that uh, we continue to try and convince that they hold a royalty. Um, so we, we are finding royalties from disparate parties all around the world, whether it's doctors and villages, uh, former prospectors of, of the land uh, or family offices. We are in conversations with more disparate parties holding royalties than, uh, than really, I, I think, what uh, what can be explained in the time limits of, of this interview. So there's some people that own royalties. They don't know they've got these royalties because it's part of some other transaction, two or three transactions yep. ago. Wow, that's, 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 that's hilarious. Um, are these worth anything? Or are they just... Some are. Yeah, it's a great question. Some are and some aren't. And we are always working out uh, which ones are. And can we get a deal done on those? And so we've been historically very efficient and very effective in terms of working out that value. Uh, we've bought two or three royalties now over the last 12 months that we expected to be in production. Um, they weren't in production when we were having these conversations with the counterparty that held the royalty. And within a matter of months, uh, you know, the royalty and, and actually the asset underlying the royalty advanced faster than even we expected, or maybe even in line with what we expected. And they've come into production now, which has helped us build a portfolio that when we went public, one of the knocks on us, frankly, was we had, we had one producing asset. Uh, we now expect to be ending the year at six producing assets. And, uh, and we think there's a lot of room for growth on top of that. So we're finding really good assets all around the world with these disparate parties. We're working out with our technical team at the front lines, which of these royalties and which of these assets is going to create value for our shareholders. But does that matter? You started the year with one producing uh, asset, and you've ended the year with six. Is does the does the market value you for being in production, or is it really just looking at this big long annuity stream? In which case it you know it applies a certain multiple, and and it's fine. You don't need to rush into 
producing because right at the, the start you said oh we, we're looking for like producing assets that's that's really but that, that's the expensive stuff isn't it yeah it's a good question and it, and it goes to your you know your big short thesis that you know investors want to understand what they're buying and one of the easiest things to understand is cash flow we are in a very aggressive cash flow ramp now based on our assets moving into production and so just to clarify we have four product producing assets now we expect that to be six based on operator visibility um, and what they've released to the markets. And we think there are more that will fall into that category as well. So we expect to end the year at six, we're at four, but we're growing clearly with the right trajectory. And so where we find the deepest value is those royalties that are up to a couple of years out from production. That being said, we, we can find value, great value in exploration stage royalties as well. But you are absolutely correct. As soon as something flips into production, there's there's a little bit less opportunity to to find and create value on those on those opportunities. But our our sweet spot is call it one day to two years out from production, where our technical team and our understanding of of the jurisdictions that we're operating in is quite extensive. And what's your threshold there? So what's the what's the variance that you're happy with? One day to two you know two years, great. But is it ever quicker? It's usually longer, right? It depends. I mean, it, we're really searching for those opportunities that are going to be three, six, 12 months. Two years is really kind of the, the long dated, long stop date for us, where if we don't really believe it's going to be in production in the next two years, um, it's probably part of a more strategic transaction with exploration royalties. But where we're really focusing our time is you know, in that kind of within 12 months. We, we have to believe that's going to be within 12 months. That's where we're allocating the time. Sometimes it can be longer. But I think our track record is starting to demonstrate we're buying these assets, um, you know, sometimes days before they go into production, and uh, and that's usually from you know really good diligence, really good intelligence on the ground. Has it ever been shorter? Um, it has. Give me one. <laughs> uh, it, so I, I can tell you, we've actually um, uh, part of the company when we when we purchase mineral royalties online, which is what housed the database, built the database. Um, they've actually and. and you know, these opportunities exist for Vox as well, buying royalties where the counterparty, because they didn't know that the royalty existed, has actually been accruing revenue um, on those royalties. And so in some instances, we're buying assets that have an accrued asset um, to go along with what's already in production. So um, yes, uh, you know, the timeline for us has been shorter. Uh, I'll speak to a couple of examples. I know we don't have a lot of time, but um, you know, one recent example is we bought a royalty over three assets, um, three three assets that comprise the broader Higginsville operations. Um, Corora is obviously, as you know, the operator of Higginsville. Um, when we bought that royalty, we thought it could be you know up to 24 months from that asset being in production. It turned out that it was in production just a few months after we purchased it. Um, that happened again. We bought uh, a royalty from an automotive parts business. We believe it was probably about a two-year timeline to production for the asset that the royalty is linked to. They came out, and this is in our last press release, this is Black Cat Syndicate, that they expect uh, to be uh, in commercial production at the end of this year. Um, and then, you know, we bought another royalty that looks a lot like that. It's over uh, the Brits deposit, which is part of Bushveld's vanadium complex in South Africa. Um, it's not producing now. We don't count that as one of the six production stage assets that we expect to end 2021 with, but you know there's pretty good. There's a reasonable chance that uh, that that falls into the producing category before the end of the year. It's a lot of opportunities like that that we're surfacing for our investors, 
um, but that we're taking highly technically informed viewpoints when we're purchasing those assets. How on earth did you get a royalty on Higginsville? I, we speak to them all the time. I, I, I love Paul Hewitt, Hewitt. And by the way, they've just, um, I think they've got a $20 million uh, drill budget for the exploration drill budget for this year. Uh, how did you get a hold of that? Because he proudly told me that they've been buying back their royalties from people like Mavericks and, and, and others, on, on, you know, Spargos and, and so yeah. forth. He must have hated that. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't speak to you know their their boardroom conversations, but you know they're great operators. They they run a great operation there. We were really uh, fortuitous um, and appreciative of the opportunity to have a royalty over those operations. You know, it's part of the ecosystem. You know, the fact that the we're in the market buying these third party royalties. It, it's what helps create build value in the industry. Prospectors have to know that there's a monetization event for them to go out and, and explore and, and bring these assets forward. And us buying the third-party royalties from whether it's a prospect or a mining company um, or you know, the disparate parties that we bought royalties from, this is what helps keep the industry going. And I think you know, some of the operators look at royalties and, and they wanna buy them back because they don't want that essentially lean on the revenue. But I, I think what's getting lost sometimes in these conversations is royalties are, are a key part of the ecosystem for, for the mining industry to be healthy. And us being in the market, buying these third-party royalties is really helpful in continuing to build that ecosystem. So where's hot right now? Where in the world is hot for royalties? <laughs> well, temperature-wise, it's not hot in, uh, in Denver, <laughs> Colorado. I can, I can tell you that. I mean, where are you guys um, looking? Where, we, where, where, you, where do you think the, yeah, the money's coming yeah. from? We, uh, where we're finding exceptional value um, is really all over the world, predominantly outside North America. North America is highly trafficked, highly competitive from a royalty standpoint. I'm not, not to say that we're not finding great value. We bought a royalty portfolio from uh, Trafigera subsidiaries, Nearstar and Breakwater. That was a great value. Those were over some very interesting assets. So it's not to say that we're not competitive in North America. Uh, it's just Apples to apples, we're finding better value probably in Australia, South America, and, and West Africa also to a lesser degree. Okay, okay, so that, that's where you're focused. Um, yeah, I mean, Australia seems crazy at the moment, absolutely busy. A lot of money being um, put into uh, Western Australia at the moment. So we understand your model, okay, third, third party. It's clear, it's, it's you know very pure, that's what you do. What are the types of models that are out there? Because there seems to be, it's hard to get under the under the hood, um, really, because it, it's it, a lot of companies kind of, they kind of sugarcoat what it is that they're doing. They are trying to make things sound very complicated. And I think maybe they need to strip it back. So what are the models that we should be aware of when we're trying to work out who to put our money with? I would, I would break it down into two categories that are different from what Vox does, which is focusing primarily on third-party royalties. The first is uh, what I would call the project generation model. These are groups that spend a lot of their time, energy, and capital on scouring the world for interesting geology, and then spinning that interesting geology out to mining companies that they want to operate and presumably advance uh, the geology and the exploration potential of these projects. In return, they usually take um, some sort of equity and potentially cash and a royalty. Um, that model is very different from us. We, we Not to say that that model can't work, it's just a different time horizon and it's a different set of risks for investors to evaluate. So we don't do project generation. There's been a lot of that. Um, and frankly, what you've seen is a lot of 
what were traditionally project generators, that's what they build themselves as, uh, have now become royalty companies. Reality is they're still project generation vehicles. They're not a distilled royalty company. So investors need to factor that into their analysis and what they're buying is that there's a drain on capital um, for those efforts. The other model that you're seeing pop up a lot is origination financing. And that's what drives a lot of the growth for the majors. They're investing a couple hundred million to a, a billion dollars and more in some of these transactions where they're originating with some of the world's largest mining companies, providing capital to bring those assets in production. Uh, I'll tell you, there's a lot of risk when you're at, at the smaller end of the spectrum, trying to deploy smaller dollar amounts into smaller operators um, and hoping that the development timeline and, and frankly, the, the development risks as you've outlined them um, play true. And usually they don't. And so I would, I would say those are the, the other models that you see in the royalty space, project generator, origination finance, um, and then third-party royalty buying, which is what we focus on. Okay, so we had a conversation last week with a, another royalty company, another $100 million, not quite, $100 million uh, royalty company. There are a few of you, okay? And I, I, don't, I don't mean to be disparaging at all because, you know, it, 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 you've done well, but, you, you know, you've all got aspirations to be more. Um, and he was suggesting, CEO of this company is suggesting, actually, there needs to be a roll-up here because none of us really are going to be able to get to where we want to be because it's highly competitive. None of us really have enough cash. We, For whatever reasons, he, he kind of felt like uh, he was suggesting that he didn't want to be running his company anymore. Okay, so which I say that tongue-in-cheek, but I, so, I sort of mean it too because um, his, his take of the world was, it's the only way that you guys will survive is if you, if you come together. I mean, what, what's your view of that? I think there will be acquisitions in the space. I think the acquisitions are going to be when there's true merit. There won't be uh, buy bad assets for the sake of rolling bad assets up. I don't think that happens. Um, but I do think you'll see selective acquisitions made that truly do unlock shareholder value. But those are going to be probably few and far between. That's my perspective on it. Um, what what I can tell you is, and I, I you know, have also seen it, is because the royalty space has gotten so competitive, there are a handful of companies and, and with more royalty companies entering the market every day that don't truly have competitive advantages and they don't like paying, overpaying for assets and, and being in shot process after shot process after shot process. Um, and you're starting to see that, I think, take its toll on some of these businesses where you know they're not growing the way that they wanna grow because they truly do wanna stay disciplined in terms of value that they're paying. but there's a lot of transactions that are being shopped that are clearing at prices that are probably in excess of what they should be on a, on a tangible, real net asset value basis. Okay. I can understand how complicated, complicated that would be. I mean, mergers are always complicated because, you know, CEOs and boards have different views of life and, you know, self-preservation and all of that kind of good stuff. Um, but we've talked in the past about organic growth, which is an unusual phrase for a royalty company because usually that's buying stuff, right? So what do you mean by organic growth and why is it important to you? That's probably our favorite thing to talk about. We lead the industry in acquisitions, but what we really like to focus a lot of the conversation on is what is our track record? What are we buying? And what does that mean for investors? And what value is that creating? So when we talk about organic growth, it's what's already been purchased. It's in the portfolio. Our investors are never exposed to another dollar going out the door for these assets. What's the growth of those assets? So when we bought it and it looked like X, what does it now look like as Y, three months, six months, nine months, 12 months down the road? And we have just a tremendous amount of support uh, for what has been one of the most successful track records over the last couple of years in the royalty space of buying assets 
and, and seeing the value of those assets really go on a northward trajectory. So what he's saying is basically, it's, it, because we time it right, we think, right, nearer production, the growth is nearer and you've got more sight of what's coming down the line. So in terms of your timing for cash flow, which you feel that you've got a better view of the marketplace, the optics are better for you. On that, cash flow, I know I've asked a question, I want to ask it in a different way, which is why is cash so important to your business model, whereas for others, it just doesn't seem to matter? You know, I think the, the, the conversation around cash flow is a really good one to have. And, and, and I think it, again, goes back to your kind of thesis that, hey, there could be um, you know, a little bit of a, a washout in the industry as investors really need to be able to parse value. And cash flow is the easiest way, typically, to parse value. And so when you know, we're right now in this exponential growth in a cash flow category where we're really ramping and investors are going to start to be able to really understand what we purchased what the, the ramifications are for that in a positive way in terms of our cash flow and our long-term cash flow expectations. That's the easiest stage for investors to really understand what's going on with the royalty company. That being said, you've had a lot of royalty companies come out with very short life cash flow or different nuanced financing structures that kind of change what that long-term outlook looks like at a portfolio level. So, but it is probably the fundamental easiest way to understand what's going on with the royalty company. That being said, it's also at that point, as soon as a royalty is cash flowing, the opportunity to find value goes down significantly. So it's not that you can't find value, it's that it just gets a lot harder. Um, and so we, us, Vox, focusing on kind of assets that should be in production over the next couple of years allows us to unlock more value for shareholders at the end of the day. And that's what it's about. I mean, it's, kind of, it's really interesting to me. I mean, you've, you've helped me kind of, again, it's just building a picture of how, how this sector works. I can see why it's probably in some companies' interest not to get to the cash stage point because people can value them. People can parse value, which is much harder to do in, in, a, in an asset, which is very technical. Cash is cash. It's really easy quantum to work out. If I, if I did a comp of all of the companies in the space I, I mentioned, it would be quite interesting. Um, I, I think it probably helps some people to have the bit of mystery to what they're doing <laughs> there. Uh, yeah. My take, you better not comment. Um, I'm here to learn. <laughs> um, okay, so let, let's, just, let's just kind of uh, finish up on um, 2021. You've talked about, they use this phrase in your presentation I saw, transfer, you've had a transformational year. Can you have more than one transformational year? Are they all going to be transformational years? You know, I think at our stage, we should have a number of transformational years. And so we're going to have to find a different word to describe the type of year that we're having and that we produce for our investors. But um, 2020 was transformational in that you know, it was really kind of the, the um, I would say, the culmination of us operating as a private company, transitioning into a public company. Uh, we closed on more than 30 royalties across 13 different transactions. Um, you know, none to our knowledge were, were shopped. So that just continues to, I think, solidify what we tell investors we're really good at, which is finding great value in the royalty world and bringing that forward for our investors. 2021 is going to be, uh, again, a very, very big year for Vox in terms of what we're working on. Um, both from an acquisitional standpoint, but also as we just talked about, the organic growth is really de-risking our royalty portfolio and increasing the value of our royalty portfolio. Um, and as an investor and one of the largest investors in the company, 
that's that's really exciting what you want to see your royalty company deliver for you. For sure, for sure. Uh, like, Carl, thanks very much for today. I, I just wanted to reach out because I had a great conversation with you in December. I learned a lot. Then I realized how much I didn't know. And I wanted your help, okay, to kind of decode the royalty space. Will you come and join us in the guise of um, Vox Royalties recommencing uh, 15th of March? And you can tell us your story then. Would love to. We, uh, we always love talking about royalties. So anytime. Beautiful. Thanks, Carl. Appreciate your time. Cheers. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.